last Sabbath, we began what I think is going to be just a short series about something, again, I don't believe we hear much from the pulpit. My last series was on happiness, and many of you said you'd never heard a sermon on happiness, let alone a series on happiness. I want to do a little series on disabled people in the Bible. Seems to me like we could stand to hear their stories a little more than we do. Now we hear the healing stories of Jesus, uh, and that's good. Um, I'm not always sure that we're paying attention to the disabled person as much as we are Jesus, and I'm not saying that's bad, as I am saying I think we need to hear the voices feel the emotions of people who are disabled. And so today I'm going to give you a little opportunity, I think, to weigh in a little on the story. Uh, hopefully uh, it won't take very long for me to share what it is that I'm uh, going to share. And then I want you to jump in to the conversation. So uh, many of us have favorite Bible stories, right? How many of you have a favorite Bible story? favorite Bible story. Well, the story that we're going to look at today is one of my wife's favorites. And uh, I wish you were here. Uh, she's over at the Pollock Center here preparing something for us to eat, I believe. But if she jumps in at some point in this, I'm definitely going to want her to say a few words because she has studied this story for years, seriously looked at it, knows a whole lot more about it, I think, than I do. Uh, and I would love to have actually had her preach the, this sermon, but I haven't yet been able to talk her into doing that. So maybe one of these Sabbaths we can. But this is one of her favorite stories, John chapter 9. And unlike some people who may just pick a verse, uh, you know, and read you a part of it, we're going to read John chapter 9, and it's not short. So if you'll follow along with me as we read, as Jesus walked along, he saw a man blind from birth. His disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Jesus answered, neither this man nor his parents sinned. He was born blind so that God's works might be revealed in him. We must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. When he had said this, Jesus spat on the ground and made mud with the saliva and spread the mud on the man's eyes, saying to him, Go, wash in the pool of Siloam, which means sent. Then he went and washed and came back able to see. The neighbors and those who had seen him before as a beggar began to ask, is this not the man who used to sit and beg? Some were saying, it is he. Others were saying, no, but it is someone like him. He kept saying, I am the man. But they kept asking him, then how were your eyes opened? He answered, the man called Jesus, made mud, spread it on my eyes, and said to me, go to Siloam and wash. 
And then I went and washed and received my sight. They said to him, where is he? He said, I don't know. They brought to the Pharisees the man who had formerly been blind. Now it was a Sabbath day when Jesus made the mud and opened his eyes. Then the Pharisees also began to ask him how he had received his sight. And he said to them, he put mud on my eyes and then I washed and now I see. Some of the Pharisees said, this man is not from God for he does not observe the Sabbath. But others said, how can a man who is a sinner perform such signs? And they were divided. So they said again to the blind man, what do you say about him? It was your eyes he opened. He said, he is a prophet. The Jews did not believe that he had been blind and had received his sight until they called the parents of the man who had received his sight and asked them, is this your son, who you say was born blind? How then does he now see? His parents answered, we know that this is our son and that he was born blind. But we do not know how it is that now he sees, nor do we know who opened his eyes. Ask him. He is of age. He will speak for himself. His parents said this because they were afraid of the Jews, for the Jews had already agreed that anyone who confessed Jesus to be the Messiah would be put out of the synagogue. Therefore, his parents said, he is of age. Ask him. So for the second time, they called the man who had been blind, and they said to him, give glory to God. We know that this man is a sinner. And he answered, I do not know whether he is a sinner. One thing I do know, that though I was blind, now I see. They said to him, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? And he answered them, I've told you already, and you would not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you also want to become his disciples? Then they reviled him, saying, you are his disciple, but we are disciples of Moses. We know that God has spoken to Moses, but as for this man, we do not know where he comes from. The man answered, here's an astonishing thing. You do not know where he comes from, and yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not listen to sinners, but he does listen to one who worships him and obeys his will. Never since the world began has it been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a person born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. They answered him, you were born entirely in sins. And are you trying to teach us? And they drove him out. Jesus heard that they had driven him out. And when he found him, he said, do you believe in the Son of Man? And he answered, and who is he, sir? Tell me so that I may believe in him. Jesus said to him, you've seen him, and the one speaking with you is he. And he said, Lord, I believe. And he worshiped him. Jesus said, I came into this world for judgment, so that those who do not see may see, and those who do see may become blind. 
Some of the Pharisees near him heard this and said to him, Surely we are not blind, are we? And Jesus said to them, If you were blind, you would not have sin. But now that you say we see, your sin remains. There appear to be a number of sort of talking scenes in this story. And so I've kind of, you know, in my mind divided it up. Now, one of the things that's true about scriptures in general is you rarely get a group conversation. And by that, I mean where person A, B, C, and D all weigh into the conversation. Usually, when you study the Bible, you will find that in a conversation, it is either A, a monologue, one person talking, or a dialogue in which there are two people talking. But usually, there are only two parties in that conversation, just two. Sometimes there may be a listening audience that weighs in afterwards, but they don't weigh in during. And so if you were to divide this story up into its talking scenes, you would see things like this. The disciples and Jesus speak about the blind man. Jesus speaks to the blind man. The neighbors of the man speak about and to the man. The Pharisees and the man speak. The Pharisee and the man's parents speak about the man. The Pharisees and the man speak again. Jesus and the man speak. And Jesus and the Pharisees speak. So, two parties talking to each other. Now, one of the things that I like to do when I divvied up this, whether correctly or incorrectly, is I like to say, what are the similarities and differences between these talking scenes? between especially these talking parties. And uh, I see, for example, that when the disciples and Jesus speak about the man, um, and the Pharisee and the man's parents speak about the man, there is an underlying religious issue. In one case, it's very explicit, and in the other case, it's more swirling underneath. We learn, for example, that the parents are thinking in their minds, uh, you know, in their mind, if I say too much, I'm going to get kicked out of the synagogue. So underneath, there's this, this theological or religious sort of underpinning, something that's driving the conversation. When the disciples ask Jesus that theological underpinning is, how did this guy become blind? You know, he's a sinner. He must be a sinner. Uh, he or his parents. When I look at uh, the alignment, though, that happens through some of this, I discover that the disciples are more closely aligned with the Pharisees, who clearly have this idea that you cannot be born blind unless you're a great sinner. Now, I'm not sure how you feel about people who are disabled. Chances are you wouldn't express yourself quite like this. But isn't it pretty easy for those who are not disabled to um, somehow put your good fortune onto your own goodness and their bad fortune somehow onto their lack of goodness? Isn't it easy for us to look down our nose, as it were, at somebody who has a disability of some kind. When I was younger, as a kid, 
It was pretty common for kids to poke fun at other kids who had a disability. And I would say today it still happens in schools quite a bit. Would you agree with me? Yeah. Kid has asthma and he gets, you know, belittled. Uh, I referenced uh, something about uh, America's Got Talent. Any of you have seen America's Got Talent? Did you see that particular instance that I chronicled in uh, my pastor's musings? Did you see that particular one? Well, there was another one about a little boy. And he came in and he played the violin. Any of you saw that? Okay, he played the violin. And when they asked him what it was about, he said he picked up the violin because he was trying to bring some hope into his life because he was bullied a lot. He had cancer and had to have chemo and lost his hair. And so people picked on him. They picked on him. It's still pretty easy, it seems to me, for us to have some kind of a floating thought that because we may not, you know, because we're blessed, as it were, and they are not. Well, amongst the swirling differences of opinion, we also find the neighbors are pretty well aligned with the Pharisees um, because they differ with each other just like the Pharisees do, right? They differ about the man's physical identity while the Pharisees differ about Jesus' spiritual identity. Is he a sinner or is he not? Is he from God or is he not? And yet these two groups, by doing the same kind of actions in this story, align themselves. So anyway, this list makes me think a little bit about the similarities and differences between the talking parties. And I'm challenged by this story in so many different ways. Um, how do I think, how do you and I think about people with various disabilities? Do we consider them as like a financial drain to us, to society perhaps in general? I mean, notice for example, when the neighbors think of this man, what do they think of him as? A man born blind? No, a beggar. A beggar. How do you feel about beggars? Well, <clears throat> I used to think that I would be feeling pretty good about them if I were to go to some part of the world where, where there might be somebody who was begging, and I have been to parts of the world where that is the case. I remember going to Rome, and right outside the sacred staircase, that's the thing, you know, that... Uh, Martin Luther was climbing on his knees when he got the great epiphany. Right outside the sacred staircase, as it's called, was a woman begging. And she had been seated in her, I thought, rather uncomfortable position on the cold pavement for hours, and it didn't seem to me like she'd gotten much for all her work. And so I went over there and, and gave her the probably the most generous donation she had, and I I knew it was because, you know, I could see what was labeled on the, on the money that she was getting. And yet at the same time, I say to myself, is that my real take on, uh, on beggars? Because I've noticed, how many of you have noticed how, how often you see people out at like Walmart? Yeah. Or Safeway. You know, those corners? Every day. I had almost every day, you see someone doing that. And I have to ask myself, okay, 
What's my take? Now, as a pastor, as you can imagine, I get a lot of people who come to me with their hand out. And uh, I've noticed that some of them are legit, and I've also noticed that some of them are trying to scam me and scam my church. I've seen times where a person showed up, you know, made all kinds of wild claims about their needs, and when I said no, managed to tag somebody in my church parking lot, and one time uh, I drove, got hopped in my car, I followed the guy after he'd gotten money from someone, and he went right into Safeway and he bought himself a bottle of booze with their money. I don't appreciate that kind of thing, but I have to ask myself, what is my thought about people who have needs? They considered this man to be a beggar. Did they consider him to be a nuisance? A drain, maybe, on society? And, and the, here's the other interesting question. The neighbor and those who had seen him before began to talk about him. Have you ever found yourself being talked about? Everybody does, right? Even God is talked about in the Bible. You and I are talked about. We talk about other people. Is it easy for us to also talk about the disabled in maybe ways they wouldn't appreciate? Talk about them? They begin to talk about this man. And uh, I'm curious, when we deal with people who are disabled, are we feeling their emotions? Are we hearing their voice? Uh, I had noticed with some interest that one of the judges on AGT said to this, this uh, autistic blind young man, I, uh, I feel your emotion. I heard your voice. And as I thought back on that statement, I thought about this story. This man kept saying over and over, it's me, it's me. And they kept saying, no, it's not. In whatever way you and I might function towards or act towards um, people who are disabled, are we hearing their voice? Do we feel their emotions? Or do we just talk about them? Identifying with other people, it seems to me, plays a distinct part in this story, and I want to illustrate that just a little bit. The disciples, again, are nearly aligned with the Pharisees in uh, talking about this man as a potential sinner, right? We saw this already. And we saw there's an alignment between uh, the man's neighbors and also the Pharisees. They get into it with each other, and they begin to argue, and they're divided. They're not quite in agreement. Uh, the man speaks repeatedly, and they pretty much turn the deaf ear to him. And uh, then, of course, if we were to move on and include some other parts of John, we would find that uh, the, the neighbors actually ask the same question of the man that is uh, also asked of Jesus. Well, I should say they asked Jesus the same question as previously the Pharisees asked Jesus, where is he? So they say to the, the man born blind, okay, so a guy has healed you, where is he? Well, back in chapter 7, verse 11, the Pharisees asked that question, the exact same question. Where is Jesus? Where is he? There's a powerful alignment, though, between the man born blind and Jesus. Powerful alignment. For example, he's talked about. They question his identity. 
He's misidentified. He's called a sinner. He is, I believe, belittled when they talk of him only as a beggar, twice, no less. He identifies himself to them. Jesus is also talked about, especially by the Pharisees. His identity is questioned. Is he a sinner? Is he from God? He's misidentified. No, he is a sinner. No, he's not from God. Uh, and very clearly uh, stated to be such. He's also belittled, interestingly enough, also twice. He is called this man. We know that this man is a sinner because he breaks the Sabbath, is one of their statements. Now, in uh, the Bible, the term this one or this man or this woman is a point of emphasis. And most of the time in the Bible, it's pejorative language. It's insulting language. A few times it's not, but most of the time it is. And so when they say this man, they know what Jesus' name is, right? They could call him that. No, this man. They belittle Jesus. And then Jesus identifies himself. Do you know the Son of Man, he says? Who is he? It's me. Jesus said. There seems to be a pretty powerful alignment between Jesus and the blind man. Now, why do you suppose that is? What's the effect, the outcome of it on you and me as we read the story? Anybody want to weigh in here? Raise your hand. Or just say it. What's the outcome? What's the impact on you as you read the story and you see the way in which Jesus and the man are aligned. Okay, yeah. Over here. Oh, there we go. There's the big statement right there. How we treat others is how we treat Jesus. Did you know there's a place in Ellen White's writings where you say the way in which you treat your children is how you would treat Jesus. Ooh, ouch, if you're a parent. Right? Ouch. Hmm. Anyone else? How do you feel? Now, some of you say, well, I may not have paid enough attention to some of the finer details, but I'm pretty sure that you noticed, at least in here, who's called a sinner? Jesus and a man born blind, right? Yeah, they're aligned with each other in a powerful, powerful way. Now, this story also challenges me rather directly with that word, we. We must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Now, while the immediate context, I'm sure, is Jesus speaking to his disciples, I'm pretty sure it also addresses me as a reader. We, meaning me and you, must work the works of him who sent Jesus. The context also is Jesus' care for someone who's disabled. Is that right? Yeah. So if you want to work the works of God... You and I must be helping the disabled. Are we doing that? 
stay right there for a minute. Stop right there. So let me ask you, what has been your, how can you say, your reflections on how well the church has treated people who are disabled? Do we do a good job? Poor job? What ways could we do a better job? So got a microphone here. Somebody weigh in. Give us, give us your idea. Over here, Estee. From what I've noticed, I think the most important thing we can do is to treat people who have a disability as a human being mm -hmm. with as much um, value as anyone else mm -hmm. and also um, that their experience is valid, whatever that experience is, um, and not be afraid of them. I think a lot of us are afraid of things that are different and that makes it hard to relate to someone with a disability because we don't understand and so sometimes there's some fear involved. Mm -hmm. Okay, thank you. Yeah. I. Rick. I think it's, um, it's, it's easier f for us you know, in a lot of ways to, uh, to, to um, identify and, well, to help, to be able to reach out and say, oh yeah, you, you know, you're missing a leg. Um, we can see that and, you know, some of us maybe who've had, you know, knee replacement surgery, <laughs> George, yeah. or, um, yeah. you know, you can, you can identify with that sort of thing. But there's a lot of disabilities that you can't see. Yeah. And I think that's where we often fall short because we think because you can't see it because it's in the mind, so to speak, that maybe it's not truly a disability and you just ought to buck up and get with the program. Okay, yes. Mental health uh, challenges as well. Over here, Tracy. I know you and I have had this conversation several times, and uh, my wife and I argue about this and how how can we move forward in helping people. There's two particular people that we know. One is a gentleman a little bit older than myself who does not have the mental capacity to be around people. He'll get a job and he'll lose it repeatedly because he just does not have enough emotional stability and enough mental capacity to be around people. Mm. Um, <clears throat> there's another young lady that we know, um, and my wife and I argue this, not, not badly, we just discuss and argue this whole thing. It, you know, the, the whole concept, teach a man to fish and you know, he'll you know, feed himself forever. There yeah. are some people they just cannot learn that. There's a, a young mother we know who's currently homeless with three children and pregnant. And her only coping mechanism, she's now on her, her 
I don't know, I think third divorce hmm. is to find another man and he takes care of her. And no matter the conversation, there's just no possibility for her to learn something else. And so I, I, I don't have any solutions, <laughs> but it's a very challenging scope of how do we be Jesus to these people. Yeah. 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 Over here, Don. Is it on? Yeah. yeah okay. Um, I'll admit that I um, that what I have to say is not something I'm proud of. I uh, had a cousin uh, who um, lives down in uh, I think Portland, and uh, he came up to visit uh, my home, and he has two children, and the. Uh, they have autism or some sort of a disability. Uh, they can walk around and they, if you didn't interact with them, you'd think they were somewhat normal. So we were sitting in the living room and one of the boys, all he could think about was opening drawers. So he, th he went through our living room, pulling open all the drawers and looking in them. And then he started on the kitchen. And um, my cousin said, uh, my cousin's uh, son said, don't worry, this, this is what he does. And uh, I think my demeanor, I mean, that seemed to me to be some invasion of privacy. Right. So my reaction was, ooh, you know, how, how, do you, how do you deal with this? And I really realize now that my um, cousin's son and his wife sensed my angst at having this process going on in my home, and uh, they've never come back to visit. I don't know if I'd do a better job now, but I realized that I was not um, thinking about them as much as I was thinking about myself. Mm. And um, I think that's a, a real trap you can fall into. Yeah, yeah. Thank you, that candid, candid uh, confession there. Over here, Harley. There was a study done where they took a person in a wheelchair and an adult that was normal into ice cream store repeatedly. And they found out that most of the people that were serving the ice cream thought that people in a wheelchair were basically brain dead. What kind of ice cream would they like? They would ask the person that was mobile and standing and around. And I think it's, uh, you know, this is pretty graphic, but I think a lot of times we look down at people that uh, have some sort of disability. Now, my wife and I have a son that was injured in a motorcycle accident about 30 years ago, and uh, there are certain things he can't do, but he's not disabled. 
Uh, he's driven in uh, demolition derbies. He's bungee jumped just lately. He came back and said, oh, guess what? I just went skydiving. So a lot of it has to do with attitude, and, and part of the attitude is mine. Yeah, yeah, I hear you there. Over here in the front, Barbara. I've worked with some disabled people, mm -hmm. and the, the thing that I notice more than anything is that if you don't understand it, there's a problem. If you understand it, now when I worked at Canutel, uh, I had a boy there that had epilepsy, but he had epilepsy in the uh, form that he would do odd things. He wouldn't pass out. So I had a meeting with all the girls. I said, we're hiring him. And when, and when you see that he's just playing with the board, because it was electronics plant, uh, just take it away from him and say, put it down. He will. But that's a seizure he's having. It's not anything that, you know, he, can't, he doesn't even remember it when he's done. So understanding their disability is part of helping these people learn to accept other people. Okay, yeah. In the straight back, Scott. When I was 30 and knew most everything, I thought people that were asking for a handout, unless they were really disabled, well, I won't say what I thought about them. It wasn't good. And now, in this day and age, many years later, you see them on every corner, like you said, in front of supermarkets and wherever. And I've learned a few things in those years in psychology classes and other places. But this gentleman over here on the far side, can't say his name, remarked about it. There is a mental block that for whatever reason, people don't know how to get out there and scramble like we did when I was young. I come out of the tail end of the depression and I got out of the first grade. There was a farmer who would let a kid that could count to 10 and write to 10 on his berry carriers work if he had an older relative with him and I went out and worked the day I got out of school. And I made 60 cents and I thought, look out Rockefeller, you got competition. And I never stopped from that day on. But as the years went, I learned to do many things. And there was always a job. There was always work. There was always money to be made. But everybody's not raised in a loving home that teaches you how to work. And there's just kind of a, a block for some, and my attitude has changed. I feel sorry for them. I don't look down on them or dislike them. 
And we, we have to think about that. Not everybody knows how to make a way in the world, even when it looks like it's not there. Okay. Debbie, you had your hand up? Trying to move along here, just so you're wondering. We're, we're only about 30 minutes into this, you know, total time, so we're not doing too bad. Um, so I'm going to confess here. I, I was raised in the Pennsylvania Dutch culture, so I had never seen a mentally challenged person growing up. Um, back then, I'm 64, so back in those olden days, they put them into sanitariums, and so I had never seen one. And we had moved to Spitzenberg, <clears throat> and I would walk every day. Sorry. There was a house at the end where there were mentally challenged adults that would sit out on the porch, and I was afraid. <clears throat> so I would walk up to like two houses before and turn around, because I didn't know if they'd run out, if they'd chase me. I, I just didn't know, because I'd never seen anyone. And so um, <clears throat> I was watching Oprah one day, and this guy was on, and he said that we need to treat each person as though they have a holy soul, that they're just as valuable as us. And so I'm like, okay. <sighs> and so I thought, I'm going to walk to the end and see what happens and, you know, hope for God's going to protect me from these people. And so I walked to the end and they'd wave. And so I'd wave. And, <clears throat> and I started doing that every day. <clears throat> and then um, my parents wanted to go to Disney, and they wanted us to go, and they needed a job, and so I was out walking, and I said, God, I need a job. I'm not proud of cleaning people's houses, cleaning people's toilets, but I'd like to feel needed, and so I was walking, and the lady that lived in the next house came out, and she said, you're such a faithful worker, walker. You walk every day. Do you have a job? And I said, no, and she said, would you like to work for me? I live in this house, but in the house next to me, I take care of mentally challenged people, and so I confessed to her. I was a little afraid. I didn't, and she said, no, they're not going to hurt you. And so I worked there for three years with these mentally challenged people. And I, was, I went from being frightened to accepting, not really ever totally understanding, because it was new to me and foreign to me. And, and they like to touch you. And being raised in the Pennsylvania Dutch culture, my parents, except for spanking, never touched us. And so I was not used to being touched. And I had to get over that. And, and so as far as the church, I think if we were educated to not have the fear, to not have the ignorance, because um, like the episode you were watching this boy that I took care of was 19 he was blind and mentally challenged and they said oh he likes to watch listen to tv and so then I said well could I bring in VeggieTales because my kids um one of which was his age loved VeggieTales and so I would play a VeggieTales that he had never heard because I asked his mother did he ever hear this and she said no and so I would pay play it through once and the next time, he could sing every song. He could say the episode word to word because even though he was challenged and couldn't talk, couldn't interact, but he could just pick things up like that. So as far as a church, I think if we were educated, we would not be fearful and we could know how to deal with people more. Okay. 
Cheryl, did you have your hand up there in the back? You did. So I'm going to give you the last word here, and uh, then I'm going to bring this thing to a close, only because of the time. Believe me, I'd love to have this conversation more. Well, I would love to address several different areas of this. Yeah. Um, of course, I work with the deaf, yep. deaf people. Uh-oh. So I have a really don't touch the bottom. Yeah. <laughs> I'm yeah. disabled in that area. I can't learn that. Anyway, no. I have a dear, dear friend who's profoundly deaf, and she has taught me so many things about what they experience and the challenges that they experience. In addition to that, I've worked in a life skills room at a high school level as well as elementary. And you know what? These kids are just kids. Mm -hmm. They want to be loved. Yeah. They want us to know them. They want to be our friend. And I think that's the biggest thing about it is learn to know them, you'll learn to love them. Those kids in my classroom are so precious to me. They're so, they're so important. They, yes, they may not look the same as I do or you do. They may have strange movements. They may have trouble holding their bowels or bladders or whatever, but they are so precious. And I think that's the thing that um, not having interacted with them as a young person growing up and even much as an adult until just recently, we miss out on the beauty of their friendship by being afraid of them. And I, no condemnation for anyone. What we, we fear what we don't know. We fear what we're not exposed to. And that's not to say that there aren't some people that have challenges that, you know, where they could create harm or where they're violent sometimes. I had to wear sleeve, sleeve covers on my arms because one kid was violent. But, you know, you learn to deal with that. And I loved that kid, you know, when I worked with him. Precious kid. They want to be heard. They want to be friends. They want to be known. And we can learn and benefit so much from the disabled community by getting to know them better. I also know specifically to the deaf community, <clears throat> there are many ways that the Adventist church has not been open to them. And I say that carefully because it's not individual churches, but sometimes in the larger picture, we're afraid because we don't understand them. We don't know if they're actually preaching the same gospel we are, if it's a deaf pastor or whatever. So I think we need to um, trust the Holy Spirit to speak their language and, and trust him to love them and for them to be honored as equal people within our church community and allow them to love and worship God without being afraid that uh, because we can't communicate with them exactly that they might 
go off in some weird thing or something. Not that that couldn't happen, but let's trust the Lord to work through them in them and to keep them safe. And if we're afraid, boy, that's something to take to the Lord in prayer. Say, God, you know their hearts. You know where they're going. Keep them in your gospel. Keep them worshiping you in spirit and truth and in the beauty of, of holiness rather than uh, shutting down some of the death ministries which has happened in the past. So. Okay, thank you. So here is an uh, interesting uh, challenge for you. Now this took place, we read, on what day? On the Sabbath. How do you and I spend our Sabbaths in relationship to people who are disabled? Seems to me that if we were reading, for example, the Gospel of John, we would see Jesus not only ran across people uh, that way, but one of the things we would discover is that God was leading Jesus all the time. He didn't just accidentally bump into this guy. And of course, in John chapter 5, I believe, Jesus goes to the, the pool and uh, deliberately seeks this guy out again on the Sabbath. How do you and I spend our Sabbath hours in relationship to people who are disabled? That's the challenge that comes to us in the Gospel of John specifically, and in at least half a dozen healing stories where Jesus heals somebody deliberately on the Sabbath. I mean, he could have picked some other day. It's very clear. How do you and I spend our time? How should we spend our time on the Sabbath? Let's pray. Father God, thinking about this story of this blind man and how many people did not want to listen to his voice and asking ourselves that question, are we willing to listen to the voices of people who are disabled, however they might be speaking, communicating with us? Are we willing to listen to them, to feel their emotions, to hear their expressions from the heart? Do we make ourselves friendly, become the friends of people who have disabilities, who care about them, enough to include them and value them. Father God, I pray that you will work in our hearts as we think about people in Scripture who were disabled and how they were treated. 